Hello, I'm Lindsay Kemp, and this is the Women in Leadership UAE podcast. Using life history narratives, this show celebrates women's achievement and the development of women's empowerment in the United Arab Emirates. And this season is supported by a research grant from the Sheikh Saud bin Saka Al Hasmi Foundation for Policy Research. In today's episode, we bring you the life history narrative of Chancellor Susan Mum of the American University of Sharjah. Let's hear from her. My name is Susan Mum. I am the new Chancellor of the American University of Sharjah. I must also add that I am the first woman to have the honour of leading this institution. How we do the podcasts for the sake of our information about what we're doing here is that we interview women who are working or live in the Northern Emirates. The reason for that is because not a lot of information about women's achievements or what women do in the Northern Emirates is available. So moving on to yourself, because we're interested in the journey of women, how they got from where they started to where they are now. So taking you back right to the beginning, where were you born? I was born on a sheep farm in rural Saskatchewan, which is one of those provinces in Canada that people describe as flyover country. I was the fourth of fifth children, and my parents kept trying to have sons to help on the farm. And they had daughter after daughter, so eventually they gave up and we learned how to help with farm work. I'm thinking early schooling now. Tell us a bit about that. The really distinctive thing I think about my parents and the thing that has motivated me my whole career is that they were incredibly intelligent, articulate, talented people who had no opportunities in life. And the reason they had no opportunities is because they both left school at the age of 14. At that time, in that part of Canada, if you wanted to continue your education to secondary school, you had to go board in a city or town. And they simply came from backgrounds where that was unaffordable. So for them, education ended at 14. And it was incredibly important for them then that their children have more opportunities than they had. So we grew up in an environment surrounded by books, lots of emphasis on education and in doing well in school, and in trying to find a way in life that would give us opportunities that they could only dream of. Your siblings, um, have they gone to university? My brother was the first person in the family to go to university. I am the first woman in the family to have gone to university. My My two other sisters between us both went to what you might call technical training, polytechnics, community colleges, and got professional qualifications. One became a registered nurse, one became an addictions counsellor. My younger sister followed me to university, worked for many, many years at the University of Saskatchewan in their extension and community service department. Was there any extended family? Well, I come from a, a big family group. So there were lots of cousins, aunts and uncles, uh, no grandparents. But um, again, we were unusual in that 
university or some form of tertiary education was our destination. So, uh, you know, it was a time and a place when most people felt that their education was finished when they graduated from grade 12. Right. And we're now at the point, let's say, of you're at secondary school or high school. Well, I, I did my first 10 years at, in the local public schools. And I was both a good student and a terrible student because I learned to read before I started grade one, which was a problem. My mother was desperate to get me out of the house. And so school was intensely boring because I could already read and, and, and that wasn't great. But I was also extremely nearsighted, so I used to get punished and even got the strap for not being able to see the blackboard. So my, I did not enjoy school. My parents were incredibly lenient with me. In the first year of school, the ages six to seven, I stayed home more than half the days. And there were no repercussions. I think my family just felt that some part of me wasn't quite ready for the formal structures of school, and they let me develop at my own pace. I think uh, I, enjoy, I certainly enjoyed secondary school a lot more, but that's because I convinced my mother to let me go to boarding school. And so, because I, I wanted that, uh, I wanted a more challenging school environment. And I wanted to be at a place where other students might be headed to university. So I moved from a very small rural school to a boarding school that was co-educational, but very, very strictly run. We were completely segregated except in the classroom. Um, but where also, out of my graduating class of 100, I think about 90 of us went on to university. Whereas from, if I had stayed in my home local school, I don't think, with one exception, anyone from that graduating class went on to university immediately after finishing high school. Besides learning, what were you doing sort of um, extracurricular activities? What were you interested in outside the classroom? I spent a lot of time learning to socialize because I'd grown up on a farm. It was fairly isolated. My friendship group was very small. So going to boarding school, suddenly you have a roommate. Your roommate has friends. Your, your roommate's friends have roommates and all of these things. So you, suddenly the social circle expanded enormously. So I spent a lot of time learning how to perform as someone who was not as introverted as I actually am. So I learned that social expression is performative and that I could think of myself as being an actor and function perfectly well without collapsing into my natural shyness all the time. We spent a lot of our time reading, doing homework. We had strictly enforced study hours. So there was a really strong tendency to push us towards focusing on our academics. I think the one social outlet I did have was the yearbook. I really enjoyed working on the yearbook. I was useless at the technical aspects like layout, but I was very, very interested in how you could help each year class identify and conceptualize themselves and sort of memorialize themselves for future students. Of course, the whole idea of a yearbook is terribly obsolete now. It's, it's not something we, we have between hard covers anymore. But for me, it was a useful, useful social outlet, not because it took me beyond my roommates and, and friends of roommate circle, but because it involved all age and all year groups. So that was, that was fun, that was interesting. I was never very good at it, but I enjoyed it very much. You went to university after that, did you, as an undergraduate? 
straight from school? I took a year off because oh. I accelerated through high school. So I graduated early. And that meant that I had a few months to earn a little money. And during that time, as well as earning some money for university, I attended finishing school, which was an extraordinary experience. I suddenly took it into my head that uh, this would be, I wanted to live somewhere different, meet new people. So I went to Atlanta, Georgia for a couple of months, for I think it was four months. And I learned some very useless skills. I learned how to get out of a sports car in a miniskirt. Now this has never been a feature of my life, but it has been of no use to me whatsoever. Can you remember what prompted you, though, to go to finishing school? Where did that motivation come from? I think it was a couple of things. First, I, felt, I still felt very socially awkward, and I felt at a disadvantage socially because of my very uh, solitary childhood. spent hundreds of hours playing outside by myself. Um, but I also thought I want to test my wings in a new environment. So I chose this finishing school because, yes, it had the finishing element, but it was also sort of a business technical college. And you've got to remember that this is the late 1970s. When I graduated from high school with a sky-high GPA, my uh, high school teacher advisor said to me, you're a very smart girl, you'd make an excellent secretary. So, you know, that is the environment that I was in. And so, and my family kind of reinforced that. They wanted me to go to university, but they also wanted me to have something to fall back on. I did learn the basics of typing and bookkeeping, which paradoxically have been extremely useful to me in higher education. Absolutely. What was your undergraduate degree? I started off in the College of Education at the University of Saskatchewan, again with this idea of needing something to fall back on. I think first-generation students often tend to be extremely vocational because we need that financial stability. We haven't grown up in environments where our parents encourage us to be adventurous and take risks in our undergraduate study. There's a real comfort level in families like that with the student studying something that has a very clear and obvious jobs outcome. So I started off in education. It was fine. Um, I did three years, but by then I felt comfortable enough to change my major. I became a double major in English and history and finally graduated. It took me more than the usual number of years because I was working part-time all, all the way through and supplementing with scholarship. And I graduated with an, uh, an honours in English and a high honours in history, but it did take me seven years. Did you get involved in anything outside the university? What else was going on in your life that you feel might have been significant? I think a couple of things were significant. First of all, I was extremely fortunate, and after door-knocking them probably 50 times, I got a part-time job in the university library, which was a fantastic place to work. It paid for the time very well. It allowed me to have some financial security during my years as a student. And it exposed me to a lot of wonderful people, and librarians are wonderful people. And I have kept a lifelong pattern of making friends with librarians because I have found them to be so interesting, so much fun, and uh, such open people. I also started as a volunteer at an organization called the Student Help Center, that's H-E-L-P. 
And what we did was we provided information and assistance to any student who walked through the door. They might need help with their student loans, they might have a problem with a landlord, they might have a legal difficulty, they might feel like they're, fa they're failing French class. Uh, any problem under the sun, we were trained to at least triage and assist with. And it was because it was all volunteers, except for one paid director, we became friends. We became a friend group because we spent so much time together working with each other and with the students who walked through the door asking for help. I eventually, by my last year at university, was the director. So I was in the, paid, the, paid, the only paid position at the Student Help Centre. But I developed a friendship network of 40 or 50 students through that volunteer opportunity. Move from your undergraduate degree, you graduate, and what happened then? Well, I did my master's at the University of Saskatchewan as well. Again, working in the library, working in the help centre, and also working as a teaching assistant in first year history classes, which was a real revelation for me. And uh, because I, of course, took myself very seriously academically and having to teach a bunch of rambunctious first year history students was a good experience. I didn't know what to do when I finished my master's degree. It happened to be that point in the 1980s when unemployment rates were sky high. So it seemed like a good idea to think about, well, should I do further training or should I go to technical school and become a dental assistant or something like that? And I didn't know which I wanted to do. I thought I could be happy in either environment because I, I loved the university and I loved the library. So I flipped a coin. It said, do your PhD. So I applied to the University of Sussex. I applied for the Commonwealth Scholarship. I didn't get the Commonwealth Scholarship till the second year, so the first year was um, very slimming. Uh, but um, I did eventually get a Commonwealth Scholarship and I attended the University of Sussex, where I got my PhD in record time because I had to finish by the time my grant ran out. And why had you chosen the University of Sussex? What led you to that decision? Well, for, in one way it was obvious. I was going to study British history. So doing it somewhere in the UK made good sense. I also wanted to move beyond the universities uh, available to me in Canada, not because they aren't very good, but because I thought I'd be more employable if I, had, if I could demonstrate that I had, you know, I had that versatility and that courage to study abroad as well as study within my comfort zone of Canada. And I chose Sussex because my master's supervisor had been in the very first year at the University of Sussex when it opened in the 1960s. So um, I was accepted to Oxford, I was accepted to a few other places that I applied to, but I decided to go to Sussex. It was an untraditional choice because most Commonwealth scholars follow that conveyor belt to Oxford and Cambridge, Cambridge and Oxford. But I went to Sussex, and although the library had its limitations, I loved it there, I had fantastic supervision, and it was a very warm, nurturing university environment. How was life for you? I think I was surprised at how hard it was. I thought as an English speaker from a Commonwealth country, it would be relatively straightforward. But of course, the societies are very different. My PhD supervisor was a wonderful woman, um, but she told me in one of our very first meetings, well, first of all, she said to me something very good. She said, do you know how to get to the British Library? I'll draw you a map. 
social media. She drew me a map and she said, do you need a job? I'll get you a job. So she got me a little part-time teaching job at the university, which was very unusual for doctoral students at that time in the UK. Um, so, and then I was on my own. It, I was expected to show up in three years with a thesis. But uh, we don't supervise like that anymore, but she was one of a generation that still did that. And it worked for me. I would insist on showing her my drafts, and I would bang on her door and, and insist on being supervised. Uh, but she very much gave me a free reign, and I enjoyed that. But, um, you know, it made me realize, and it's something I've never forgotten, that so many of our students' decisions are, at least in part, economic decisions. If they can't afford to study, you won't, we won't see them in our classrooms. So this has become very, a very important part of my motivation and how I organize my work and how I think about universities. Because I know it may be middle class to worry about money, but in a sense, we're all middle class now. And besides studying and working, what else were you doing in your um, life while you were a PhD student? Well, because of the nature of my PhD, I spent a lot of my time in convents. I travelled around the UK staying in 25 different Anglican convents to use their archives because their archives were held privately. And so that was a fascinating experience for me. And I had to keep interacting and explaining my research to a new group of rather sceptical, somewhat suspicious people who were concerned about being portrayed in a negative light. So all of that was really useful experience for me. I also made friends amongst the other postgrad students. And remind the audience why you had to finish your thesis in three years. Because I had a Commonwealth scholarship with no chance of extension, and when the grant ran out, I was done. And so you graduate, you complete your PhD, we're all dying to know what happened next. I often think that I'm one of the most fortunate women in the world because I was born in the 60s in a developed country with access to health care, with free education, largely up to a certain point. And I was given all these opportunities that my grandparents, my grandmothers could only have dreamt of. But um, so I got offered a job in the UK. I was very excited about that. But then I also got offered a tenure track job at York in Toronto. And I thought, well, part of the expectation of the Commonwealth Scholarship is that you should return to your home country and contribute there. So all things being equal, I decided to take the job in Toronto. And I went to York University to teach modern British history in a department that hadn't hired anyone in 17 years. They called me the baby of the department, which I disliked very much. And what did you like most about that first permanent position? I think what I liked most about that first permanent position was having a permanent position. I had no illusions that I had any kind of exceptional talent or raw ability. I knew that I'd been very lucky to be in the right place at the right time with the right passport to get that job. And so I felt, and I still feel, immensely privileged every day that I walk in through the door of a university into a world that is closed to so many. And having that job gave me all the opportunities I've had through the rest of my life. And so I felt grateful for the job. I liked my students. I 
published like a demon, you know, at least for a historian, which is still a pretty slow rate compared to most disciplines. But, you know, I, I thought almost anything I could do wrong during those first few years as an academic, I probably did wrong. But luckily, it was a forgiving, somewhat elastic environment where I was able to think, that wasn't the right way to do that. I'll never do that again. And so I learned. I kept learning and learning. So really, it was the job and the opportunity to make some mistakes without desperately negative consequences. I stayed right up to the point where I should have applied for tenure. And then I got uh, a call from a British university, the Open University, saying, uh, why don't you come work for us? And I thought, I would love that because I thought there is a future to higher education, which certainly involves face-to-face, -face, but also involves new technologies. That's what the Open University was all about. It had a quarter of a million students. How exciting is that? And it also was this very dynamic, egalitarian kind of structure set in the middle of nowhere, north of London. And everyone at York said, Susan, you're crazy. You're leaving tenure track. Nobody ever leaves tenure track. You're leaving a secure job that you can hold for the rest of your life teaching exactly the same three courses you're teaching right now. I didn't want that. And so I did the crazy thing. I left my tenure stream job. I went to a country that didn't have tenure and started working at the Open University where I spent more than a decade with working with some of the most fabulous colleagues anyone could ever have. And you say you got a phone call from the Open University. Um, how, how did they know to phone you? I think it probably came out of conference presentations because like a lot, a lot of young academics, it's much easier to give conference papers than it is to write a paper for a journal. So you feel your way into publication through giving some conference papers. So I was doing a lot of British history-oriented conferences. And I had an unusual cluster of interests. I was interested in women, I was interested in religion, and I was interested in the 19th century. And at that time, it just so happened that the Open University's Religious Studies Department decided that it was probably about time for them to hire a woman after 30-some years of existence. And so I was the first permanent woman hired by the department. I ended up being the first woman chair of the department, first woman this, first woman that, um, all, all unknowingly and all unwittingly. But um, I worked with wonderful people doing exciting things. We innovated, we thought about how do students learn? And how can we use new technology to help students learn? It was a lot of fun, as well as doing all the radio and television. I was there for a little bit more than a decade. So I, I started as a, a lecturer. I ended up as a senior lecturer and head of department. And I thought, I'd like to be a dean. And I, could looked at, I looked around and I thought, if, I'm, if I wait to be a dean at the Open University, I'm going to wait a long time because there's a lot of people in the queue ahead of me. And so I started applying. So I've always been grateful for the jobs I've been offered. But I think I thought it has to be either the UK or Canada because of my passports, the two passports I hold. And it just happened that the job came up at a small, formerly women's university in Canada that uh, had been founded by a Catholic religious order. So I became Dean of Arts and Science there. And we've talked 
very much about your roles at work. Um, in your outside life, outside work, um, what were your interests that were going on as you were going through your career? Well, I am a mad keen gardener. I hit my peak later in my career in New Zealand where I had a, over a hundred different varieties of roses in my garden. So I, ironically, I now work someplace where I don't think growing roses is possible. But uh, that, cats, my family life, and, and just sort of having opportunities to keep learning and, and, and doing new things. I, I became very involved with various environmental groups where I worked as a volunteer, um, encouraging more tree planting in, in London, England, uh, later in London, Ontario, other groups that helped small communities create community gardens and allotments and things like that so that people could have that joy of, of growing something that they could actually take home and feed their families with. And I've always enjoyed that and I found that a great deal of fun, but I also have an excessive number of cats and always have done. Tell us about the experience in New Zealand. What were you doing there? In New Zealand, I was pro-vice-chancellor of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Massey University. And getting rather boringly and predictably for me, I was the first woman to ever have held that position. And it was a wonderful university. It was dynamic. It was one of the top 50 universities under 50. So it was young enough to be flexible and innovative and be interested in doing things in new ways. I loved the experience of living in New Zealand. The people were wonderful. I thought the flora and fauna were stunning. The country was beautiful. People were so kind. I loved everything about my years in New Zealand. And I did, I did a lot of exciting things within the college as well. And I also learned what it's like to have a really bad boss. And I, I learned a lot about the, how empowering a good boss is. Did you want to give any more information about that, maybe the, um, from a learning perspective, about you know, learning to be a professional from an experience like that? Well, I think it's probably a good experience for everyone to have a bad boss at some point in their careers. Because for most of us are reflective beings. We reflect on what happens to us at work and we think, what was right about that? What was wrong with that? And I thought to myself, when I'm, if I'm ever a boss, I want to be better than this. So I learned that from having a bad boss. I also learned that the tone comes from the top. And even if you're in a leadership position that doesn't give you a lot of opportunities to actually make change, you still have the right and the ability to set the tone for your, your area of responsibility. And for me, that's been about treating people with kindness rather than with harshness or disrespect. And it's been about trying to find ways to express all their talents in their jobs was it from New Zealand that you went, you came to the United Arab Emirates? Um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I've worked at, I think, eight universities on three continents. So you can say two things about me. I'm not afraid to take a little bit of risk, and I don't care that much about permanence, which in some ways are good attributes if, in building a career. But... When I left, I didn't want to leave Massey University. I was having such a good time there. We were doing exciting things. My colleagues were fabulous. I've never worked with such wonderful people. 
And then I got a call from Queen's University in Ontario. And I'd never worked for that kind of elitist, very upper, upper, upper middle class, almost 200-year-old kind of institution. I tended to favor first generation, open access, um, very egalitarian institutions. But I thought it would be good for me to learn how the other half lives and how the other half receives its higher education because they have a reputation for quality. Let's see if we can take that quality and bring it into the broader higher education picture as a dean. So I became dean of arts and science at Queen's University, and I was the first woman in the 175 years of Queen's University to be Dean of Arts and Science. And again, I didn't know that till I got there. It didn't make any difference to me except to think, this is getting old. <laughs> I sincerely hope I am the last of the generation that will be the first woman to do this, that, or the other thing. What drew you to, so you've been in Canada, you've been in Britain, um, what drew you to coming to the Middle East? I think a couple of things happened. I had been um, principal, which is equivalent to president of a women's university in Canada, a very small one, and it was easy. I, I could see myself spending the rest of my career there without really being challenged beyond the day-to-day -day problems that crop up anywhere. And I thought, well, I'd like to expose myself to a new culture again, just as, as Georgia was a new culture, Britain was a new culture, New Zealand was a new culture. I thought, I've still not moved beyond my comfort zone. I've been largely in the Commonwealth. Let's go to somewhere with a different cultural root and a different cultural genesis and see if the things I believe in will work there. And it just so happened that the American University of Sharjah contacted me or someone contacted me on behalf of the university said we'd like to talk to you about this job and I my blood started to flow faster in my veins I thought oh this is exciting this is so different from anything I've done this is co-educational I missed co-educational yet there's lots of women on campus this is a different culture this is um, a different mix of programs and it would give me a chance to test myself against a whole bunch of unknowns and I've spent my whole career saying yes, rather than no, no matter how frightened I've been to say yes. So I was desperately frightened and I said yes. Thank you. So drawing to a close, um, what, is there anything else that you'd like to add in to this wonderful st story of your journey from how you got here, where you came from? I, th I think there's one thing. Um, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in a, a, a conference for women who were aspiring to be university's presidents. And I was there to be one of the panelists. And I was listening to the panels and all these amazing women presidents were talking about their supportive partners and the fantastic mentors they'd had and you know all of the things that had made it possible for them to step into that role. And I thought to myself, this doesn't sound right to me because my story is a different story and I think my story is the one women who are thinking about that next step need to hear and that's you don't have to have a supportive husband or any husband to do these jobs. You don't have to have mentors who give you wise and good advice throughout your career. You can mentor yourself through books. You can, you can 
create opportunities, not necessarily create opportunities, but you can take the opportunities you're given and focus on how could you do it better rather than just how can I do it exactly like the person who was here before me. So life is unpredictable. So I think the thing I want to say that I haven't had the opportunity to say is that we are imperfect leaders in imperfect institutions, in an imperfect world. And we have to embrace that, acknowledge our mistakes and say, despite my mistakes, I was called to this. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and leave it for someone else to do even better. Thank you very much to Chancellor Dr. Susan Mum for bringing to life her CV, her career and her whole experience of how she got here as Chancellor of the American University of Sharjah from where she started. Thank you so much. My pleasure. episode was produced and recorded by Sabah Haag. It was edited by Renad Kitmito. If you like this episode, follow us on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and subscribe to our show. Special thanks go to Susan Mum, the Chancellor of AUS, and her staff members, and the marketing team of the American University of Ras Al-Khaimah. The Women in Leadership UAE podcast is produced by the team of researchers from the American University of Ras al-Khaimah and the American University of Sharjah, and that team includes Dr. Sabah Haag, Assistant Professor in Mass Comms, Dr. Mohammed Abeka, Department Chair in Management at the American University of Ras al-Khaimah, and Professor Narita Ahmed, who's Professor of Marketing and Information Systems at AUS. And myself, Professor Lindsay Kemp, Professor of Management and the Graduate Program Director of the School of Business at the American University of Russell Heimer. That's all for today. We'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode.